Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Are we all living in a projection that's based on the give and take of information? Can there really be a theory of everything? And what are the implications for paranormal experiences? Hello and welcome to the 940th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WOON, AM and FM radio here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those phantasmal questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today we bring you a new guest on a very cutting-edge subject. Thomas Campbell is a physicist, consciousness researcher, author of the My Big T.O.E. or TOE Trilogy, T.O.E. standing for Theory of Everything, and international lecturer. He describes the nature of, quote, our larger reality, provides a complete theory of consciousness, and explains our purpose and connection to that larger reality. In December, I attended an online lecture that Tom did for the Consciousness and Contact Research Institute, a group Ben and I are involved with, and I was very impressed with his work and theory. So let's take a look at them. So, Thomas Campbell, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, it's great great to have you with us, and it's uh, it's it's all... I'm, I'm, I'm ready for an interesting conversation, and I guess the best way to start is for you to kind of lay out the basics for us, especially when it comes to your idea about our larger reality. Well, the, the, well, let me just give you a little background on where it came from and tell you what it is, and I'll try to make it short. Fair enough. Um, basically, I started my career in physics and my career in consciousness research at about the same time, which is starting about 1970. And I began with consciousness then with Bob Monroe out at uh, Monroe Laboratories, which then was Whistlefield Farms, not TMI, still hadn't uh, been invented yet by Bob. Uh, it didn't happen for probably another six or seven years down the road. But anyway, I worked with Bob. He taught me how to go out of body on demand. And being the physicist, I uh, started to do physics there. I started to um, do evidential things such as remote viewing, healing, um, you know, reading uh, newspaper headlines, that kind of thing uh, in, in advance of it being published, doing evidential things and changing a variable and see how that affected my ability to do those things and change another variable or change it a little more and so on. And about 35 years later, it you know, took a long time because that's rather tedious, changing one variable at a time, particularly in a situation that's got you know, literally dozens and dozens of variables. Uh, I thought I understood consciousness enough to write the books, the My Big Toe Trilogy. That was a theory of consciousness that uh, I knew uh, was fundamental, and that physics had to be able to be derived from that, because one of the facts of consciousness that I that I uh, came to in my studying uh, consciousness was that consciousness is fundamental, and that the physical world is not fundamental. It's it's downstream from consciousness. And I learned that from the, from the simple fact that I could do things in consciousness that would modify what happened in the physical world. 
but it doesn't work the other way. There's nothing you can do in the physical world that significantly modifies consciousness or does anything at all to consciousness, for that matter. So that means that the arrow of causality goes from consciousness to the physical world, not the other way around. So I took all the facts I knew from studying consciousness over you know, many years, many decades, and all of the facts I knew from being a physicist. Because also over those many decades, I was a working physicist. Uh, started in uh, uh, military technology, foreign technology, then uh, went to uh, missile defense, NASA, and some other, other companies. But um, in any case, I was looking for a model, one understanding, one perspective, one way of looking at, at uh, reality that would explain all of the facts, all the facts I had come up with in consciousness and all the facts that I knew as being a physicist of the physical world. And eventually, I did that. I was able to find the perspective that um, allowed me to derive physics from consciousness. Now, I know that sounds a little crazy, but I can, from first principles, derive both quantum physics and relativity uh, based on an understanding of consciousness. And it's a better uh, derivation, or it's actually a more advanced physics than the physics we have now. For instance, I can explain quantum physics. Quantum physics is not weird science. Quantum physics is logical science, just like all the rest of the sciences. I can tell them what happens when that wave function collapses to a physical result. That's the big mystery in quantum physics, they don't really know what that means. That's one of those, you know, dot, 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 and a miracle occurs. You know, they don't really understand that. It's just what they say. Um, well, they say a lot of things that really don't make sense, like, you know, in double slit, that the particle goes through both slits at the same time. Well, that doesn't make any sense. But so I can explain that uh, logically, why that happens. Why should particles be best modeled as probability distributions. I can also explain why speed of light is a constant, irrespective of the speed of the source of the light. That's something that only happens with light. Nothing else that we know of in this reality works like that. Velocities are always additive, but not light. So that's something else the physicists don't understand. They don't understand why the speed of light has changed uh, significantly in about the eighth or ninth decimal place from time to time. It's done it now about four times. It doesn't change much, just about in the eighth decimal place. But we can measure it to like ten decimal places, so we know it's real. It's not just a measurement error. Um, physicists have no idea why that would happen, and I can explain that. Um, you know, the thing that's called, um, uh, let's see, um, well, the name escapes me. I'll, I'll get it in a second. Where there are uh, cosmic constants, several constants that uh, kind of apply to the to uh, cosmology, to the universe, gravitational constants, one of them. And these constants are all tuned to each other. And I think there's been some books written on this. It was kind of a popular idea maybe 10, 15 years ago. People noticed that... If any one of these constants changed, even in, the, say, the eighth or ninth decimal place, 
then the universe wouldn't exist as we know it. It would have uh, become unstable. It would have disappeared, self-destructed. So it only can exist because of the very, very intricate balance of these you know, various things. So it's tuned. And I think it was called the anthropomorphic principle because it looked like it was tuned just for us, just so this planet and this, you know, could create this, this universe would end up with this planet. Mm. Everything was just such that we could survive and do well here. And, of course, physicists have no idea how that would have happened. How is it just by chance that you have these this whole array of constants that are just tuned to eight or nine decimal places to make the universe functional and stable. So those sorts of things, there's a Zeno paradox. There's a lot of other paradoxes, too, like where does time come from? Where does space come from? Where does charge come from? Now, they'll tell you what the smallest unit of charge is and that that charge builds up all the other charges, but where does that come from? You see, all the basic things of physics that, that um, you know, physics is really a, just the science of how all those things relate to each other, space, charge, time, um, uh, the whole bunch of the mass. Anyway, how those things relate to each other is really what the science of physics is, a, is about. And physicists will tell you that those things just are. They don't come from anywhere. They don't have a physical um, uh, cause. Everything else must have a physical cause based on those things, but they themselves have no physical cause. So there's just a whole set of paradoxes in science that we know they're true because our experiments say they're true. You know, double slit experiment is one of them. And physicists have no idea why they should be that way. And my model explains all of them very simply. My model only has two um two assumptions in it. One is that consciousness exists. That's not such a great uh, leap of uh, faith to get to that since we all think we're, we're conscious. And the other one is that evolution exists, that a self-changing system uh, with uh, constraints will adjust and, and uh, change itself in order to meet those constraints. So those are the only two assumptions. The rest of it is just logic. Now, that's kind of where it came from. Okay. So I took all of these facts and came up with this theory. Now, what is the theory? Basically, the theory says that we are consciousness. Consciousness is fundamental. We, you and I, and uh, all the other people, and most of the animals and critters that are conscious, uh, are individuated units of consciousness. We're not bodies that this reality, just as the physicists say, you know, they say it, our reality is an information-based reality. At least all the particle physicists will tell you that. Uh, also, quantum theorists will probably tell you that, because nothing else works. If a, if a particle physicist looks at a particle like an electron and models it as a piece of mass with a charge, that doesn't work. They can't compute the right answer with that. They have to look at it as a point with the attributes of mass and charge, which is the way you would represent uh, an electron in a, in a simulation. So they say that our reality is information-based. That means that it can be computed. 
that means that it can be a simulation or it's a virtual reality. Now, the scientists don't want to go to that that statement that's a virtual reality because if they say that, somebody's going to say, oh, well, who's the programmer and, uh, you know, where's the where's the computer? Because they can't answer those questions, they just leave it at it's an information-based reality. And if you ask them what that means, they'll say, all we know is that it's an information-based reality. They refuse to, to budge past that. But actually, I have a, a logical um, model, very much like the um, you know, Darwinian model of uh, evolution. You know, it starts with a with a Darwinian model, starts with a cell. And if it's half a living cell, it can show you how that cell evolved into everything else, or maybe even a couple of cells, but it, how it develops into what we have now. Okay, so I have a similar kind of thing. I have a model that starts with consciousness as its most fundamental elementary form, which consciousness is defined as awareness with a choice. Now, that means it's awareness that can make choices. Now, if you make choices, that means you must have free will, because otherwise, if there is no free will, then there are no choices. You have determinism, which says there are no choices. So consciousness with a choice uh, is, I mean, awareness with a choice is how I define consciousness. Now, awareness is simply that you are aware of something. You know, you're aware of what? So awareness means that you can you can uh, get well. Let me put it this way: awareness is information. The what you're aware of can be described with the information. So consciousness is an information system, an aware system, a system that has choices. Now all information systems evolve by lowering their entropy. If you have an information system and all the bits are random, then there is no information. If you order some bits, then you start to have information. As ordered bits can mean something. They can symbolize something or be a metaphor for something. So you create information by creating order where there was no order. That is a measure of entropy is a measure of disorder. So if you have high entropy, and in our, our, our model here of, of the conscious system, if it were all the bits were random, that's the highest possible entropy that you could have in that system. As you order bits, then, you lower entropy. Entropy is a measure of disorder. So an information system evolves by lowering its entropy. That's its motivation. That's what it needs to do. If it de-evolves to the point that it's all random again, then it's dead. It's not an, you know, it's not an information system anymore. It's a system that maybe has potential for information, but it's, it's a, a dead information system. So the system wants to live. It wants to evolve and in the simplest form of an awareness that has a choice, you would say something is aware that it can be in state one or state two. That's it. That's an awareness. That's the simplest piece of consciousness. 
Well, that's like it's a one or a zero. It can be in one of two differentiable states. From that, it can evolve. It can be in state one and then state two and then state one and then state two and oscillate between them. Uh, that would then be a little more uh, complex, okay? a little more order going on there. Uh, it could be in any number of patterns of this and that or one and zero. Patterns of patterns. Eventually, that evolution slows down. Patterns and patterns can only take you so far. And it takes a pattern, which is a, just a, you know, a one and a zero, a one and a zero, just flipping back and forth between one and a zero, and that creates a metronome that defines regular time. Now that it's defined regular time, and this regular time is a technology it's created, now it can do sequences of patterns, of patterns of sequences, and it can get more complexity, more order, lower its entropy. Eventually that also levels off, plateaus, and the growth uh, slows down. And the next step is a, is a major step, same step we had to take in biology, and that is it had to break itself into individual cells that could interact with each other. So now we have the larger conscious system, but we have it split off pieces of itself that I call individuated units of consciousness. And these individuated units of consciousness uh, are just little subsets. If you're thinking in terms of uh, computers, you'd say it was a, um, a virtual machine, a little computer inside a computer. Okay, or otherwise you could just say it partitions off a piece of itself, you know, some memory, some processing, and uh, so on, and makes just a, a little subset of itself. So individuated units of consciousness is what we are. And we communicate because we, you know, have awareness, so we're aware of each other, and the first virtual reality is the protocols for communication. So we communicate. It's like a big chat room. And now the interactions, the possibilities are huge because, you know, what all these things with free will, you know, what could they do? What could they create among themselves? The possibilities now grow tremendously. But still, like usual, you get a plateau after a while. The learning is slow because the choices that are available don't have a whole lot of significance. The choices in a big chat room don't have a lot of consequences. So in order to evolve more rapidly and more surely, the larger consciousness system creates a virtual reality, a virtual reality with a rule set that provides more definite context between interactions, between individuated units of consciousness. Now, how does it do this? It doesn't program a virtual reality, it evolves one. It starts with a set of initial conditions and a rule set. Then when the run button is hit, it lets that rule set determine how those initial conditions will change. What are the initial conditions? A very small, very tight ball of plasma, high temperature, high pressure, and the rules are what we call science. Matter of fact, that's what scientists do. They try to dig out the rules that are in the rule set in this virtual reality. So when the run button is hit, the 
Initial conditions change according to the rules, which the rules, like we say, are the physics. Now, you recognize this from the Big Bang. So that ball of plasma expands. As it expands, it cools. As it cools, you end up with suns and then planets and then something like our solar system and our planet, and then eventually us. So all of that just evolves according to the rule set. So the computer is the larger consciousness system, an information system that can configure itself as a computer and also can configure itself as us, an individuated unit of consciousness. So that's kind of the, the, the general idea. So then we are avatars. Our bodies are avatars, computed things. And our reality, the thing we call the physical universe, is a virtual reality. That's why the physicists say that it's an information-based reality, and they don't say it's a virtual reality because they don't understand what I've just explained to you. They don't understand that consciousness is the computer, and they don't understand why this virtual reality was generated. Now that we have this virtual reality, you see, individuated units of consciousness can log on, play the avatars in this virtual reality, and now we have consequences, life and death consequences, you know, starvation versus, uh, you know, getting food uh, and shelter and competing with each other. So suddenly we went from individual units of consciousness that had never really done anything except chatted in a big chat room to being in this virtual reality with with uh, very consequential choices to make. And, of course, we made them badly. And one would expect that because we had no, we had really nothing more than potential. We hadn't, we hadn't actualized much of our potential at all. So when we were starving and somebody else had food, well, and we're bigger than they are, we'd take it away from them because it was, you know, they, they starved or we starved. So this idea of, uh, you know, preserving self made us uh, rather grabby and made us uh, more warlike. And we fought with each other and tried to take over each other's resources, or their shelter. I mean, a nice cave with a spring in it was very attractive. And if you had a larger group or a stronger group, then you'd take it away from a smaller group. So then we've been evolving ever since. Now, in a social system, I can give you some logic, but I'll skip that step and just give you the result. In a social system, that is a system of individuated units of consciousness, you know, with free will, the optimal entropy reduction, you can lower your entropy, That's the, that means you're evolving more positively, that you can optimize by cooperation of these individuated units, by them caring about each other. And I call that the, you know, the, the love side. On the other side is the fear side. If you have fear, you have no trust. You know, if there's fear, then you're afraid somebody's going to take your stuff and you'd like to take somebody else's stuff because mostly if you're fearful, it's all about you and what you need, you and yours, your tribe, uh, your children, you know, your spouse. So that's the fear side. And that, of course, is a high entropy side because we know, you know, it 
tends to organize itself socially in terms of like warlord uh, idea. And eventually a few individuals have the great, you know, large percentage of all the resources and the others, you know, they have some hierarchy there, but most everybody else is a peasant. That's the way that works out on the fear side. On the love side, uh, you optimize. Everybody wants everybody else to have what they want. So it's everybody working together. You get sustainability. You know, you get sharing. Somebody has a good idea, they share it. They don't hold it so they can profit from it. They share it with everyone else. So that means if you want to lower your entropy, what's our purpose? The purpose of the system is to lower its entropy. We're part of a social system now with the system, and in this virtual reality, we're interacting with each other. What is our purpose? It's to become cooperative, to make choices that are caring, to make choices that uh, are what can I, how can I help? You know, what can I do? What can I add? Not what can I get and how can I keep it? So our you know, our point for being here is to lower the entropy of ourselves, and because we're part of the system, that lowers the entropy of the system as well. Okay, so, I'll have to stop. We have to take our mid-show break. Okay, uh, I'm so, almost done, so that's a good place to stop. Okay. I'm pretty close. <laughs> Want to come I'm back with close. some questions? Okay. Uh, well, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our amazing guest, Thomas Campbell, in just a moment, so stick with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late-night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to WOON Radio and Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Our guest today is physicist Thomas Campbell with some pretty amazing ideas. Now, Tom, if you could just very quickly wrap up what you were saying, I want to get to some questions. Okay, well, it all wraps up. I was just about done. So what I've done is shown us um, you know, what we are. We are consciousness. We're not avatars. Um, that uh, our purpose here is to grow up, become love, become uh, cooperative and caring. Um, now, we'll see a few, a few facts that fall out of this. You know, if this is a virtual reality, then from the perspective of the avatar in the virtual reality, the computer and the player are both non-physical. And that's what we are. Consciousness is the player. Just like if you were playing Sims, you know, you're the player, you're the consciousness. You make up all the choices for the Sims character, that is the avatar. And from the Sims character's viewpoint, inside the virtual reality, the player and the computer are both non-physical. Well, so it is with us. So here we are. Our bodies are the, are the uh, avatar. We are consciousness, the player, and both consciousness system that is the computer and the IUOCs that are the players are non-physical from our perspective. So that kind of was probably a good place to jump into 
questions. Now, I've just okay. hit the high points of that. I've run through it as fast as I could. And it probably <laughs> to you, the listener, feels like it's got all these holes in it that don't make sense. But I uh, trust me, it is a science. It is logical. And it uh, it all does make sense if you get to the details. Well, before we start with the questions, in that case, that's a good place to tell people where they can get your books and uh, also YouTube videos. Okay. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, which is um, if you go to YouTube and then do a, a, a slash TWCJR44, or you can just put my name or my big toe in, in at Google, and that'll get you there just the same. I'll come up on the first page. Um, now, a lot of the science is in YouTube, not in the books. Uh, in the books, I talk about the science and I kind of show the top level things. But a book that was meant for the, you know, for the everyday reader is not a place to put a whole lot of science. So you'll find that um, best if you go to a, just a couple of places there. And one is if you go to YouTube, go to their playlist, and on that playlist you'll find a uh, thing called uh, Science Trilogy, and then there's a couple of other videos there, so it's not a lot. It's about four or five videos, and they will explain kind of the science of my big toe. So if you're a science kind of guy, there it is. Now, if you're on the other side, uh, the interesting thing about this model is that it not only gives you a scientific uh, model of the objective world that is a better physics, but it also gives you a complete scientific model of the subjective world as well. So if you're interested in the subjective end, like why am I happy or why am I miserable, then it answers those questions, but it also tells you that everything that's paranormal is normal. It's perfectly a part of this model. So the paranormal is this a natural attributes of science, but they all occur on the intuitive side. Consciousness has two ways of processing. One's intellectual, one's intuitive. All the paranormal always happens on the intuitive side. So with that little uh, uh, thing, you can get my books anywhere that you can find books pretty much. Uh, in, uh, if you go to a bookstore, they may have to order it. But you go to... to uh, Amazon, of course, the, <laughs> the source for books, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll find it there in three forms. It's a digital form, a paper, you know, paperback, hardback form, and in audio form on uh, uh, audible.com. Very good. Okay, l- let's uh, take this from our point of view. Now, my background is in uh, philosophy and theology, uh, mm-hmm. and I started about the same time as you did, 1970, when I was studying for the priesthood. And I started paranormal research, and that did not work out because I didn't like that. But in 1974, a very famous case, uh, poltergeist activity in Bridgeport, Connecticut, I stood there with uh, six uh, first responders. So we have seven individual units of consciousness standing there in the kitchen, and the refrigerator started to float in the air. How would you interpret what we were experiencing? Was that... Uh, completely intuitive in, in one way, and what would you say about that? Well, just like any virtual reality, you are a piece of consciousness, and you receive a data stream from the computer. Okay, there really is no avatar, there really is no refrigerator. You know, you are a piece of consciousness getting a data stream from the larger consciousness system. You interpret that data stream as the physical reality. 
So it's not difficult at all for you to have a refrigerator that floats uh, sent to you in your data stream. Now, why would the system do that? Well, for could be for any number of reasons, but probably in this case is just to help you see a bigger picture and the other people, you know, all seven of you, plus anybody else that you might talk to who finds you credible, it kind of opens your mind, opens your mind to know that the reality is not just this this materialistic, uh, you know, model that the scientists give you. And the scientists would say, oh, you just imagined that. That was all a hallucination. But you were there, and you know better, exactly. because you saw it, and all seven of you saw it. So you know it's not a hallucination. So that means reality is a lot stranger than anybody thought. Now you become a seeker, and you start looking for, how did that work? What's going on? Has anybody else ever seen the refrigerator float or anything like that? And you start learning and growing, because the bigger your picture gets, the lower your entropy is. That's a growth thing. That's evolution. If you if you get a bigger and bigger picture of things, then you are evolving positively. So that's why the system would show that to you. Now, it may give you a reason. You say a uh, uh, you know, poltergeist kind of thing. That may be your explanation. It could be that uh, the system just gave that to you just to help open your mind. But there may have been some other things going on, too. I don't know about what the whole situation was, but typically that's how those paranormal things happen. I've talked to people. I talked to one lady whose mother died, and about 10 days later she picked up the phone, and it was her mom. And it's just, uh, you know, hi, sweetheart, I, this is your mom. I'm just calling you to tell you I'm okay and everything's fine. And, of course, what she did was slam the phone back down because she was so freaked out by it. And then she was very sorry that she had hung up on her mom. But, uh, you know, these things happen to individuals just to help wake them up. I have an engineer friend who had a dream. He was in an airplane, and he's an engineer that, that uh, understands airplanes really, really well. So he knew exactly the make the model of this plane, and he saw people in it, and they were all in black and white except one little girl. Two days later, a plane crashed. The exact same plane, same make, same model. Everybody died except one little girl. And that just freaked him out. You know, he's an engineer. He's a materialist. You know, and suddenly his you know, fabric of his uh, reality just gets torn up. So he becomes a seeker. That happens all over. You know, if you look at the survey... How many people has ever had a paranormal experience? It's like 75, 80% people will say they've had a paranormal experience. Yeah. Mm. Well, we'll uh, talk, I uh, hope, at some point about the rest of that case. But right now, well, we have a very um, uh, a listener in Bogota, Colombia, Peter Shelley, who is also an occasional co-host on the show, and he's sending in some uh, questions. Ben, if you would. Of course. Uh, and Peter writes, uh, you have said the uh, MBT theory explains uh, what preceded the Big Bang. Uh, you have mentioned mm -hmm. uh, the ball of plasma and the paradox of where it came from. What is your explanation? Well, I already gave that, but let me uh, yeah. focus it so you'll, <laughs> so you'll see it. Uh, that is, okay, science says that our reality came from this, this Big Bang. But of course, the question is, where did the ball of plasma come from? Because obviously it didn't come from us because we didn't exist yet. We are the evolved version of that ball of plasma. So 
where the ball of plasma came from, it was just uh, the initial conditions when the larger consciousness system needed to create a simulation to give the consciousness uh, individuals a, a, a more you know interesting environment. It just made up a set of initial conditions and a rule set and said, all right, the big, you know, digital big bang, take one. And it probably ran for a little bit and probably bombed. And he adjusted the constants a little bit, adjusted the rule set, adjusted the initial conditions, said, all right, digital big bang, take two. And after digital big bang, you know, 6,000, it had those constants uh, down to eight decimal places. And it had the the initial conditions and rule set kind of refined to something that would create a stable universe. So that's where it came from. It was just it was just the initial start of um, what the larger conscious system thought would work. And after that, it had to evolve. And I'm sure it changed a lot from the very first try, probably many, many, many trial and errors before it actually got a system that was stable. Mm. So the next question, I uh, touched on this a little bit in, towards the beginning of the show. Um, I've noticed your biography mentions working at uh, aerospace organizations, including NASA. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of what happened at the Monroe Institute is that you learned how to induce out-of-body experiences and explore other worlds and realities. If this can be done, uh, wouldn't NASA be interested as it would uh, make conventional space travel unnecessary? Well, maybe someday in the future, when uh, our culture has grown up to the point that they understand the nature of reality, then I'd say yes, they would be, because you can travel to all these places, not only in our physical reality, we call our physical universe, but in other reality systems that are not our physical universe, but somebody else's. So we don't have the only virtual reality uh, on the, in the game. We just have a virtual reality in the game. And yes, you can visit uh, any of these re- realities and find out things uh, that are there. Now, there is, you know, there's reasons that that is limited. Once you understand consciousness, you understand that there are limitations. You tend to get in this intuitive side, you tend to get information in paragraphs. You don't get information necessarily in linear strings like we do. So the details tend to not be as clear. I guess you could focus on those details and eventually work them out, but it would be more effort. Typically what you get is metaphorical uh, things. Things have to, you know, they, they have to be within your grasp and by that i mean that when you get information and you don't understand it then you have no way to process it what you do is information comes to you and you have to do like a pattern match with all of your history all of the things you know to try to put that information into context if you don't have any patterns to match it if you get something that's just so different than anything you've ever experienced before you don't have any way of of interpreting it because you're getting this information, you know, mind to mind, if you will, from the larger conscious system to you, and you have to interpret it based on your knowledge, based on your experience, based on your ignorance, based on your fear, on all the things that make you up. And if you can't do that, 
then you end up kind of with a, well, I sort of got the idea maybe, but I can't explain it. And so you have, you can only get things that are just a, a small step away from where you've been. And then you really have a good grip of that. You know exactly what that was. So there's a bit of a problem in getting information that way. There's limitations, I say. Let's, let's put it that way. But yes, you can. If you want to go look at what's on the dark side of the moon and you're not really looking at the chemical, you know, composite of the dust there, but you're just looking at the, you know, what's on the ground. You know, like you're seeing it from, uh, you know, from a, you know, 100,000 feet up or even 10,000 feet up or even standing on the surface is fine. Then you can see and get all that kind of information very easily. Yes. But if you want to get into the details of it, you have to be prepared to have the background to help you understand those details. Otherwise, they won't compute for you. Hmm. Ben, you want to? I do. Um, as I've been furiously scribbling notes. Uh, so one of the one of the really interesting things that I find is the idea of sort of order and entropy. Uh, all throughout human history, there's been this sort of conflict in many different you know mythologies and whatever of, of chaos versus order. You know, mm-hmm. you have you have sort of <clears throat> in in Greek mythology of Gigantomachy, the war of the giants. The giants represented you know chaos, and, and the 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 Olympian gods represented order, and you know anything that was outside of civilization was disordered and had to be ordered. All that stuff, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating that we as humans have had this experience of trying to order reality throughout all of our time in in this you know this this mm-hmm. this reality. So through all this time, in in your opinion, you know, we, we know that order is the opposite of entropy, but what is order? And what are we trying to order everything towards? Well, I think we have this this natural proclivity, this natural drive or interest in ordering things. Ordering things creates what new capabilities ordering things uh creates knowledge creates information you know creates devices uh disordering is things falling apart things not working things not uh you know things disintegrating so order is how we evolve and we have this fundamental notion that we want to move in that direction we're consciousness we're here in order to lower our entropy so as we, you know, as we function, I think we just naturally want to order because it makes, you know, when you order things, they become more useful. One measure of entropy is, you know, a measure of disorder. But there's another way of talking about entropy, and that is it has to do with the ability to do work. If you have a system, that system's ability to do work, if its ability to do work is, is less, then that's high entropy. If it's greater, that's low entropy. So you have a, a, you know, what do we say? Let's say, uh, you know, an ounce of gasoline. Okay, so it's ordered because it's a, it's a liquid. So it, all the molecules kind of are trapped in a jar and it's ordered. And if you throw in a match, boom, you have, have a energy. You do a lot of work. If you take the lid off and let the gasoline evaporate, now the same gasoline exists. It's just now spread all over the atmosphere. What can it do? Nothing. You see, it no longer has the ability to do any work. So it's, it, it is now more dysfunctional. So 
So if you look at entropy from that viewpoint, the ability to do work in a system, you know, the ability of a system to do work, you see that uh, we'd always want that system, as we are part of that system, to be more ordered, to do more work, to accomplish more things. You know, for uh, biology, you start with single cells, then you got, uh, you know, you you lower the entry a bit, you get multiple-celled things working together to make one organism, and then you get multiple cells with cell differentiation, with organs now. And every time you decrease entropy, increase the order and the sophistication of the system and the complexity, you get a thing that's more uh, survivable. You get something that's more flexible. You get something that uh, is more easily survivable. So moving toward greater order, I think, is just innate in us. That's what works. That's what creates things of value and going toward chaos that's what takes things of value and destroys them. That's what gets rid of value. Now let's let's take a let's take a little little step back and, and look at the the world as it is now. Would you say we are getting more ordered or more chaotic? Ah, on the long term, if you have the long view, we are getting more ordered. We are evolving uh, our quality of consciousness. That is lowering our entropy. And if you look at history, you go back even. 200 years or so. You know, go back 200 years and you'll find that life was a lot cheaper than it is now. There was more more abuse, more uh, more the warlord mentality. I mean, we're still in a warlord mentality, but we're outgrowing it. But the nice thing about ev- evolution is is that it accelerates. So does learning. You know, the more you learn, the easier it is to learn more. The more you evolve, the easier it is to evolve more. So this this is a curve that begins rising in its its evolution or rising in its its change very very slowly. So the first what we're about two hundred thousand years from when the Homo sapiens you know walked out of the jungle, and in that two hundred thousand years probably you know ninety nine percent of it we've been in warlord mentality. We're outgrowing that now. You know we don't. Act that way. We are much kinder and gentler and con- more considerate a a people, and that's just talking about us humans than we were just a few hundred years ago. And a few hundred years is just an eye blink out of two hundred thousand. So yes, we are evolving. The other point here is that evolution may be slow, but evolution is relentless. Even if it goes backwards for a while it still will just keep the pressure on to chug forward. So eventually we'll make it. We will produce a society and a culture that cares and that is cooperative and that is kinder and gentler. So from the uh, theological point of view, there's a term called the problem of evil. And you believe Mm -hmm. that evil is being overcome by people, sort of a kingdom of God without God? Well... Uh, okay, yes, I guess we can say that. Now, you know, you bring up God, and I was in a, in a meeting with a couple of theologists. Uh, people had their doctorate in theology, and I asked them to give me a, a list of the attributes of God. I thought that was a good question to ask a, you know, a theologian. And they did. 
they got together, and this is now, I should say, it was in a unity church because I had had, an org, I had a, a talk going in a, their basement using that church as a venue. And uh, they did, the two of them, and they came up with a list, and the list matched the attributes of the larger consciousness system one for one, every attribute. Now, I told them not to come up with things that were uh, dogmatic, you know, but to come up just with general attributes. So the larger consciousness system is the source. That's we're all a part of it. We're all a piece of it. Uh, you know, we're all one with that source. So that is that is, you know, that's true. And the whole thing is evolving toward becoming love. Becoming, uh, you know, the more and more that you can, the more and more structure and value that you can create with all of the pieces working together, is growing. So yes, is the general answer to, to that question. We are evolving, and it is uh, you know, us as, a, as one thing, pieces of a single okay. consciousness. Now, not to get uh, Manichaean here or anything, but in our work, we constantly run into what we believe are individual units of consciousness, to use your terms, uh, that are bent on chaos mm-hmm. because that's what they feed on. Right. Uh, the, 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 um, the legends of demons and this sort of thing uh, mm-hmm. would be caused by these things. Um, but in the Manichaean view, an ancient uh, philosophy and religion, you had a good God and an evil God, and the good God eventually would win. So are you kind of... Um, Taking a Manichaean approach, no, in no, that sense, we don't that have, no, we don't have a good God and an evil God. We we just have the larger consciousness system, and I should mention, though that meets the criteria for God, it it's imperfect, it's not done, it's still evolving, mm-hmm. it's not supernatural, it's just a natural system. So it's it's all of those things, but. We get evil because people are making poor choices. When you make poor choices, then you raise entropy. You move toward chaos. And you can continue to make poor choices. And if you make a lot of poor choices, then you become probably an evil. Uh, you know, that, that name probably then will apply to you if you make enough uh, poor choices. And if they affect a wide enough bunch of people, then that's where the evil is. It's just us de-evolving by making poor choices. And that has to be allowed because we have free will. We can make a bad choice if we choose. And we can make a lot of bad choices if we choose. But the system evolves as we make good choices. But you can't say, well, you have free will as long as you do what I want. Mm -hmm. When you have free will, then if what you want to do is something that creates a lot of entropy, then that's just part of what we have to learn that's part of our feedback that we get, that we see, oh, that's not helpful, that's not good, let's not go there. So it's part of our feedback to help us uh, go forward. Okay, I get what you're saying. Um, anything else, Ben? We're just almost out of time here. Well, it's it's interesting because there's, there's a really ancient um, concept of divinization versus demonization. And it, I, I, demonization is not even the right word because that, that word had a very different meaning back in the day. But essentially it was like you, as you became more ordered, you know, reality around you would sort of, you know, be ordered along with you. And then if you did things contrary to it, 
you would do things that were disordered and and you know sort of de-devolve almost. And it's it's mm-hmm. I, I hear I hear a lot of parallels. And yeah, it took me it took me a little bit, but I'm like, all right, all right, I can I can see where you're I can see where you're coming from. I don't disagree with it at all. Um, and it's it's uh, the problem with with the English language is it's it's we say all the same things, but we use very different words to, <laughs> to mean all the same things. Absolutely, it's it's uh, it, we have a tremendous disadvantage with that because we all we all kind of have the same sort of idea, but it's it's um it's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. I had another I had another question, but it, it would take forever. To get to, so we'll we'll, we'll save, save it for, it for a different time. Show. Yeah, I'll, I'll write it down the so I don't forget it. First of many conversations, I hope. Yeah, very good. Yeah, well, when you have a theory of everything, it's really hard to explain it very quickly. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a fine job in one hour. Thank you so much. Okay. Very well, let's get back we'll... together again and uh, maybe just do questions this time. I think that would be great. We'll be in touch off the air. Thank you so much, Tom. All right. Okay, let's get to our announcements, Ben. If we could. Sure thing. Okie dokie, we're going to hop right into uh, our, our first big thing, which is the New England Parafest. That's a uh, marathon event that runs from the, uh, that, that's starting next Saturday, geez, April 9th through the 26th, and uh, we will, that will begin, um, you know, with a bunch of events uh, that are based in Lawrence, uh, in Haverhill, Mass, and Haverhill, Mass, I should say. The action uh, continues right here in uh, WON Studios on Sunday the 10th as we do a live broadcast with a panel of the Parafest speakers during our regular Sunday show slot. Uh, these will include Mike Stevens, Andrew Lake, uh, Matt Moniz. And then during the April 23rd event, my dad will present a, uh, a talk at the uh, Community Center in Kittery, Maine. The subject is Working with Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, this event will benefit the historic Hilldale Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And you can find out more at EssexCountyGhostProject.org. And the Exeter UFO Festival is finally back after a two-year hiatus. Uh, that will center at the historic Exeter, New Hampshire Town Hall over the Labor Day weekend, September 3rd and 4th. More information will be forthcoming. This is a great event sponsored by the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club to benefit local children's charities. Uh, we do plan our traditional live broadcast from the event on Sunday with a panel of the speakers. The subject of our talk uh, will be time storms, with thanks to the great British researcher Jetty Randalls, who coined the term. This is a very fun event, and the whole town gets involved. Restaurants serve things like Roswell Burgers, Final Frontier Franks, and Alien Crunch Ice Cream. A lot of fun, so more information to come. Indeed, and you can visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find out over... Where you can find over uh, 1,100 hours of our regular shows, uh, special broadcasts from 2008 uh, from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WON, AM, and FM, including uh, those that have been restored in the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com. You can also hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube, and pretty much anywhere you can find your podcasts. And make sure you check out our webpage, uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, for the charities that we support, and uh, please help them if you can. So what's brewing for next week, Ben? Well, we we have uh, Cooking in the Percolator. Uh, as a as mentioned, on April 10th, we'll offer a roundtable um, with the panel of speakers as part of the 2022 New England Parafest. Uh, we leave you today with a thought from contemporary author Ray T. Bennett. Roy T. Bennett, don't be pushed around by the fears in your mind. Be led by the dreams in your heart. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind 
the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.